The state of Tennessee took the political spotlight nationally in April when its General Assembly took a vote to have three of its members expelled. You see, they were leading a protest, a protest concerning gun control laws just after a mass shooting in Nashville. Now, it should be noted that expulsion is an extreme and rare act. In this case, expulsion also smacks of overt racism given that one of the representatives, Gloria Johnson, who's a white woman, was not expelled, while two black representatives, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, were expelled. We have been pointing to political activity by conservative legislatures in the states as battlegrounds to either maintain or roll back civil rights, labor rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and all of the gains made to bring America closer to a true democracy. The action is happening in the states have to participate and engage in state and local politics. Remember that the southern states vowed massive resistance after the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. Well, judging by Arkansas's rolling back child labor protections, Florida's assault on black history, Georgia's regressive voting laws, and in the interest of time, just Google the Alabama or Mississippi legislature and you'll get it. Shout out to South Carolina and North Carolina too. I don't want to leave you all out. But our guest this week on the Parlay in All Blue, Dr. Sekou Franklin, is a professor of political science at Middle Tennessee State University. He has uh, published works on racial identity, healthcare, urban politics, social movements, juvenile justice, the death penalty, and state and local politics. He points to Tennessee as the state that tells us the most about what's happening with democracy in America. He has also written a book with Ray Block Jr. titled Losing Power, African Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics is an excellent guide to what's happening at not only at Tennessee, but it gives you a guide to what's happening across the states in politics and what's happening nationally in American politics. In this conversation, we talk about the drivers of polarization, the tactics and strategies used by black lawmakers when facing uh, conservative supermajorities and how important it is, it is for you and I and our neighbors and everyone around us to vote and engage in state and local government, in state and local politics, and how important it is for us to organize around those things. We want to thank you for listening. Uh, we urge you to share it with others, discuss it with others. Um, also, leave us a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find the show and support our work. And if you want to support our work in other ways, you can buy me a coffee 
at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. Uh, the show runs off of coffee and books. If we don't buy coffee, we will buy books. You can also find the link to Buy Me A Coffee in the bio of, of any of our social media pages. We appreciate you, and thanks for listening to this episode of The Parlay in All Blue. Dr. Sekou Franklin, welcome to The Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. Now, we're a whole four weeks away from, which is ancient history in the American sort of attention span, on April 6th of this year. Again, that's a long, long time ago for us. The state of Tennessee took the national stage for its politics and what was happening in the General Assembly, where the General Assembly voted to expel representatives Gloria Johnson, Justin Jones, and Justin Pearson. Now, Jones and Pearson were expelled. Gloria Johnson survived by one vote. I think it's important to remind people how rare these expulsions are, not just in Tennessee, but across the country. So this was an extreme polarizing tool, to use a term from your book. But it's also smacks of overt racism, because we have to note that Gloria Johnson is white and representatives Jones and Pearson are black. I'm not a close follower of Tennessee politics, not certainly not like you, but there are a few stories that I have been following that were indicators, sort of that red light on your car that says something is going on. The Tennessee comptroller attempted to take over the predominantly black town of Mason. It has to be noted that Mason is less than five miles from a Big Ford, Ford Motor Company project, Blue Oval City, which will bring prosperity to the area and to Mason. Again, it's a black town that was going to be taken over, was attempted to take over by the comptroller. Also a black farming community near Blue Oval. They are fighting to receive a fair price for their land, which the state needs to accommodate Blue Oval. The farmers, the black farmers are saying they're receiving less than a third of what fair market value is per acre for the land. Tennessee State University, the state's only public HBCU. I've seen their esteemed president, Dr. Glenda Glover, either going before a committee in the legislature or other things explaining things like why are so many black students going choosing Tennessee State? And, you know, Dr. Greg Carr and Oprah Winfrey and my brother-in-law would say, what? I mean, that's, that's not an unusual choice. And then a few months later, or it's not too long ago, I'm assuming it's the same comptroller recommended vacating and restructuring Tennessee State's board. Again, Tennessee State is, is a historically black college in Tennessee. And then Finally, in Rutherford County, black children were being jailed at an alarming rate for a crime that did not exist. And I will post that. I saw it first in ProPublica, but I saw it in the Tennessee and in other places, too. Now, that's what I know. But on your Twitter, you have pinned there a, an article or an essay that you wrote, a sort of 50 of these types of incidents of political maneuvers. So it, the list is really long. 
my first reaction to all of this and, and probably many others was that this is a Southern state acting in the extreme, especially during the Trump era. But in your book, along with Ray Block Jr., Losing Power, African-Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics, you point out that for much of Tennessee's history, it's been a relatively moderate state, especially compared to its southern neighbors. And you point to some of the reasons and where sort of this polarization began. And I think it's instructive to understand what happened with Representatives Jones and Pearson but also for the nation as a whole. I'm here in Georgia, and, and, and there's a lot of things that mirror what's going on there in Tennessee. So let's just start with, first off, when did this polarization start in Tennessee, and what were the factors that led to it? Well, I'll update, I guess, some of my comments that Tennessee's, Tennessee's always been a conservative state. Sure. So how you define conservatism differs, but it typically was seen as a state that had a, a different character than the deep South states of South Carolina, Alabama, right. Georgia, and others. So when you compare Tennessee to other Southern deep South states that have a history of Jim Crowism. And so there was a historical in Tennessee, there was what a Washington Post reporter called a, a bipartisan consensus that often emerged for a lot of different reasons that differed in Tennessee than it did in other states. But the more recent iteration of polarization, which Ray Block and I talk about, from where I stand, it started in the first decade of the 21st century. And anecdotally, we begin to hear some things in the state legislature in terms of some of the work I was doing, you know, outside of the academy. But I think the story that maybe the national media pinpoints is gerrymandering, the gerrymandering of 2010, 2011, 2012, the gerrymandering of the more recent round that this last year. But I actually predated later than that. So what we suggest is that Tennessee had a kind of a late partisan realignment. So whereas the South kind of realigned itself from Democrat to Republican in many parts of the South, for Tennessee, that realignment process occurred at a later stage. And so what we began to see in Tennessee was that the polarization was enhanced when you had Republicans making significant gains in formerly yellow dog Democratic counties. And for Tennessee, what that meant was that you had these lily white counties. We have 95 counties in Tennessee, but you have these lily white counties um, that are 70%, 80% white. And in that first decade of the 21st century, from let's say 2000 to 2012, the Republicans had a net gain of 25, I think 27 seats in the House of Representatives out of 99 seats in these counties, in these areas, rather these districts, these legislative districts that were like 90% white. So uh, along with that, you found that was an enhancing factor in the polarization process. But also what also enhanced polarization was were several other factors too, I think, in Tennessee. Of course, you had the Tea Party wave that encapsulated the country. We had our wave of folks here in Tennessee. And just anecdotally, you even heard some of the Republican lawmakers a decade ago or so that were in the legislature there for years even some of them who were very conservative were worried about this Tea Party faction that came about, mm -hmm. uh, along with then gerrymandering and in the previous round of redistricting, partisan gerrymandering, and then another wave of partisan ger gerrymandering as well. And then really, and of course, propelled by the kind of pro-Trump wave and then the anti-Obama wave, which which are less talked about in the book. But mm -hmm. the, those things kind of converging all together 
all together at once. And and then in Tennessee, you have a, a kind of a unique situation, whereas in Georgia, you may have diverse populations of black populations that are that are that are in, in the Atlanta metro area in Savannah, Augusta, Columbus, Macon. They're basically distributed throughout the South, Albany, the black Alabama black belt. Whereas in Tennessee, the diverse and particularly black populations are concentrated in just a few areas. Mm-hmm. Memphis, Shelby County, mainly we're mm-hmm. talking about. 40 to 40, 40 to 45% have 50% of the black population is in Memphis, Shelby County. Those rural West areas within the 30 minutes to an hour outside of Memphis, Shelby County, and then Nashville. Mm-hmm. And then you have pockets in Knoxville and Chattanooga. So where Republicans are able to build the supermajority are in these other areas outside of those areas pockets. And in those other areas, they're able to run highly polarized campaigns. They're able to run what's called what we call segregated campaigns, campaigns in which they can make very explicit kind of extremist appeals to their constituents, racialized appeals, but also anti-everything appeals to their constituents, and are insulated primarily. And so Democrats can build up large numbers of what they have in Shelby County, Memphis, Memphis, Shelby County, and Nashville, Davidson County. But but that doesn't matter because they're able to build even they have a surplus of voters in these other areas that out far outnumber those two large metro areas and those rural West counties where West Tennessee counties where African Americans are. So where where it stands now is, you know, one example is that you have, I think, outside I think you maybe have two only only two or three I think only two white Democrats remaining elect in, in a in a house who are not from Memphis, Shelby County, and, and Nashville. Mm, mm-hmm. That means that all the white Democrats, 90% of them come from, they primarily come from Nashville, Davidson County, and, and, and Memphis. And so in those other areas, in those 90, 93 other counties, those 92 other counties, in those other House district seats, they're primarily coming from these these insulated, lily white counties, lily white re- legislative districts, and they're able to just kind of constantly build up a supply of voters and maintain their power and maintain their influence. That's why in this legislative debate about the expulsion crisis, two things that were missing in the media was that, you know, really some of the Republicans said, well, we don't care what the New York Times says. We don't care what CNN says. We don't care what MSNBC right. says because, you know, we're, we're insulated. We're protected by by voters, by constant, by voters. And then... But even with even the Gloria Johnson story is in many respects an incomplete story because Gloria Johnson is not just a, a static person. She's a person that Republicans have targeted in Knox County for a decade. Okay. And in Knox County, Knoxville, Knox County, for your for your listeners, that's a that historically is the Republican stronghold. And so for a decade, they've targeted her over and over again. And in, and in the more recent round of redistricting, they drew Gloria Johnson into a district that was Held by a black lawmaker, Sam McKenzie, who actually is the chair of the Black Caucus now. Okay. And so, what she and what she and the black lawmaker worked out was that she would just move to the next district or go to the next district, and they wouldn't be competed; they wouldn't be placed against each other. So, it's a very complicated story in Tennessee, and I think for your listeners, it's kind of an exciting story in the sense that we should give more research to this because what it displays is, the, of course, the politics of the South, the politics of red states, but the politics of the South that is multi-layered. Mm-hmm. And we're in the Mid-South region, whereas Georgia may have, depending upon your numbers, depending upon the year, roughly about 30 percent of the population is black voting age. Black voting is uh, the voting population are African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Tennessee, that number is about 17 percent. OK. And so those kinds of margins 
dramatically impacts the ability to build coalitions, to be insulated if you're white lawmakers and, and a whole range of factors. Yeah. So so thank you for that. And, uh, and you, you pointed out in your book sort of the time frame of when this starting is and, and, and just in your, your comments around t- 2010, 2012. 2010 is the first Obama midterm and 2012 is his reelection. And I think 2010 is when the Tea Party sort of comes to being. With with that in mind, though, most states realigned or began sort of realignment, meaning conservative Democrats, segregationist Democrats becoming Republicans after Goldwater, after sort of the Voting Rights Act. Tennessee had a long run of where Black legislatures were well represented and also really effective during that time. What what sort of held off? What what made Tennessee realign at a slower pace than, let's say, Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia? Well, I think part of it goes back to Tennessee's longer story, longer history, which is going back to the to the Civil War in which Tennessee was split into two camps, more or less. So you had the like the, the, a different Democratic Party, but you had the kind of Confederate Confederacy Democratic Party. Then you also had the the Republican kind of pro union Lincoln Republicans. To get for your readers, listen, there's different Republicans. Republicans yeah. I gotta make sure we point that out because yeah, yeah. we don't want to be misquoted quoted about that. But it was divided and split. And and because of that division and split Abraham Lincoln was able to bring in as as his vice president Andrew Johnson, who was a bona fide racist. Yeah. I mean, he was one of the most vicious white supremacists, ultimately presidents in this country. But he also was a pro union, a pro union Democrat, so to speak. And so things like things that maybe happened in the Deep South didn't happen in Tennessee. We didn't have federal troops here in the Deep South. We were split into two different camps in terms of political parties. So. Things that happened here in Tennessee kind of shaped a longer history. And then we had in Tennessee, and, and going into the 20th century, because what really impacted Tennessee was a, a, a population shift in which there was a significant population shift from the rural communities in Tennessee to the urban and suburban and metro areas in Tennessee from like 1901 and 1960, such that Tennessee became ground zero for a major redistricting dispute, maybe the most important redistricting dispute in the country's history called Baker Baker versus Carr. For your readers, that's the major redistricting case that forced state lawmakers, state legislatures to draw districts every 10 years. And Tennessee was ground zero, ground zero for that. Mm-hmm. So there's a larger history of politics being muddled and there being so-called the seeds for what we might call a bipartisan consensus. Now, again, Tennessee, like many Southern states, that bipartisan consensus didn't necessarily mean pro-Black, so to speak, or pro-civil rights, so to speak. It meant often conservative Democrats and also moderate Republicans or conservative Republicans kind of forming an alliance. So those are are the kind of anchors that, that probably held Tennessee together or prevented Tennessee from, from, from realigning itself or at least going into a partisan realignment at a later stage than many of those deep, many of those deep southern southern states. So that's that's probably the best way I can answer that question. Yeah, no, that's helpful. So we have the realignment, and then thus the redistricting. Explain to our listeners what is devolution. 
Yeah, devolution is a concept that was popularized during the Ronald Reagan administration, and it, it was a takeoff of an earlier kind of Nixon phrase called New Federalism. And devolution basically means that that power is is being turned back into the hands of the states. For those people who are you know, very well versed on civil rights, to hear Ronald Reagan talk about devolution in the 1980s, for them, it was a code word for states' rights, yeah. mm-hmm. state autonomy that we're going to turn power back to the hands of the states. We're going to take programs that are typically anchored by the federal government. We're going to give states control of those programs. And so we're kind of in a long stage of devolution. We're really in a devolution era. We really have never recovered. And so what's gone on in this kind of period of devolution, or even going back to the 1970s when Richard Nixon first began to turn power back to the hands of the states as well, was that it's given state lawmakers and state agencies a, a tremendous amount of influence. Yeah. And so now if we fast forward to 2023, state lawmakers, state legislatures have a tremendous amount of influence to administer federal programs, anchor federal programs, however they want to do it. We see some of this in the Mississippi context where they want to take environmental programs for Jackson and Reorienton. Yeah. Um, and we see the ability for lawmakers, and this is kind of a, a newer phenomenon since the book's coming out, we see them in Tennessee punching up and punching down mm-hmm. and where they're punching up is they're punching up against the federal government. So because they have so much power, these state law, state legislatures, Tennessee is punching up against the federal government telling the federal government, no, we don't want HIV AIDS funding. They reject the HIV AIDS funding in, this year. Mm-hmm. They're telling the federal government that we may not want the $1.8 billion worth of federal dollars that go towards education yeah. because we are suspicious about those federal programs that promote diversity, for example. Yeah. But they're also punching down at cities. So they're punching down at cities. And that is that they are preempting in Tennessee a range of a range of, of policies and power. So what our state legislature has done in the last decade is that they have preempted basically means overturn. They've overturned living wage a living wage ordinance for municipalities. They've overturned the ability of municipalities to oppose anti waste debt ordinances. I mean, to, to pass anti-waste step ordinances. So if you're like a city that wants to make sure that people who are formerly incarcerated don't have their wages stolen at a construction site, you can't do, you can't pass a law stopping that. Wow. That was largely in response to a movement in Memphis by activists to push for an anti-waste step ordinance in that particular areas. We've seen the use of printed powers to around LGBTQ issues, around inclusionary zoning. We can't have an inclusionary zoning to establish affordable housing policy in local governments anymore. We've seen more recently in Nashville, a legislature's target in Nashville, they've taken over our sports, our, our airport authority, mm-hmm. our airport board rather. They've taken over our sports authority, at least partially taken over our sports authority. They've eliminated our tourist development zone so to speak, which brought in millions of dollars into the city of Nashville. And they've even also have, have, have cut our council in half. So what these state legislatures are doing, not just in Tennessee, but throughout these kind of red states, particularly in the South, mm-hmm. where states' rights is, is, is the idea of having states' rights is like sacred ground, that it, states' rights or devolution mm-hmm. has given these states a tremendous amount of power is that they are enhancing their power they're creating, to use a term that I stole from someone else, I don't know who, they're creating effectively a subnational government Yeah, that's networked across various states. That means that what's going on in Tennessee, you find similar things going on in Florida, similar things going on in, in, in Texas, probably well-coordinated and also being backed by the federal courts. So being backed by a very conservative federal courts. And, and as a consequence of that, we're seeing really 
attacks on on democracy and really kind of an authoritarianism that's really affecting thing and, and and that's what those lawmakers Justin Jones Justin Pearson and Gloria Johnson uh, had to deal with and walked into not just them but there's a history in Tennessee of black lawmakers facing similar kinds of kinds of responses by conservatives yeah so I'm glad you said that because one of the things that we promote on the show is that your local your state like like people a lot of times don't vote in the local or state elections like your lieutenant governor public service commissioner your auditor <laughs> farming commission treasurer those are the people that are either going to empower your day-to-day life and that's where a lot of sort of the what i call the where a lot of the gains from civil rights are being chipped away at the state level. The, the story, we did a story a couple of weeks ago on the welfare, welfare fraud case in Mississippi. And that's devolution of states' rights, where sort of the welfare money, instead of use, it used to be a, an entitlement block grant to the state of Mississippi. And there's very little controls over that. Atlanta is always under threat, Atlanta being a black city always under the threat of losing the airport. Jackson, that's the state of Mississippi, wants the airport in Jackson. So that is definitely a trend. I want to go back to, because you mentioned that Black legislatures were effective, really effective, especially sort of prior to sort of this polarization. But what I think many people were drawn to was just the fight demonstrated by the Tennessee Three and the young men, just the images, I just have to put it out there, of Jones and Pearson standing up, I think was inspiring to many. What types of lawmakers are they? What are they outside of, you know, what we saw about a month ago? What types of lawmakers are there? Are they and and what do they sort of get behind? Well, it's a hard question to answer because they're relatively new. Mm-hmm. So Justin Jones was was elected and was just seated in January, and he represents a district. and 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 I and I know him know him a little bit. I know him, Justin Jones. He represents a district in that covers what is typically known as East Nashville and parts of Antioch and other places. It's it's a majority. It's a multiracial district. It's probably mm-hmm. about thirty percent black, a significant number of, of whites. The whites are what we might call. Many are progressive, and there's also a non-white, non-black constituency group that's particularly in that Antioch, that Antioch area. And and Jones is most of the activists in Nashville know Jones because of his work as an activist coming out of Fisk University. He's been mentored by some of the Diane Nash and other folks okay. like that, and he's also been a very well-known activist and protests and getting arrested and going to the legislature for a number of years and also also engaging in, in a variety of a variety of protests so anyone who knows them knows that they're not they're not particularly surprised by Justin Jones and he and Gloria Johnson have a have a, a friendship or partnership or relationship that goes back even pre before he was in the in the legislature okay. Justin Pearson Pearson is really brand new. He replaced Barbara Cooper, who 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 we our co-author and I we interviewed for her, for our book, and Barbara Cooper died while she was in office. Okay. So Justin Pearson won a special election in February, mm. and so and his his work is is he 
was the co-founder and maybe the most, and I don't know Justin Pearson, but maybe the most prominent voice of a of an environmental justice movement in Memphis, and and maybe the most important environmental justice movement that we've seen in Tennessee in recent years, given the the real environmental hazards that many Black folks in Memphis face, which is documented in this essay I, I talked about on 50 attacks on democracy and uh, where they wanted to build a pipeline. It was the equivalent of like the Memphis resistance around like Standing Rock, what Standing Rock was, yeah. mm-hmm. that also was. So he kind of came into the legislature with those kinds of anchors in an environmental justice fight that did involve involve quite a few quite a few African Americans. But he was relatively new and just got there. And he got there actually actually was just inaugurated a couple of weeks before that. Oh. Although he had been there for a couple of weeks. He had been there for a couple of weeks and got inaugurated and then this is yep. So we know relatively little about the legislative part of them because they're relatively new. Yeah. So so what about other and I want to come back to actually that environmentalism and then and the other activist activities that both of them have been involved in. But the takeover of Mason was unsuccessful by the comptroller there. So that's a good thing. Were black legislators or activists involved in that? How were they able to prevent that from happening? Well, with Mesa, Tennessee, and uh, knowing some advocacy groups that worked on it, I, I don't know. Of, let me say this right. I'm going to say this right way. Typically, what happens is that if there's an if there's an an effort like that, what black lawmakers do is the work behind the scenes. Yeah, do phone calls, bringing pressure on on state 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 officials, stuff that you really can't see that are large that make up the invisible part of, of politics. And I don't know whether they were or they were not involved in that. What I what I know is that historically when things like that happen, black lawmakers play a significant role. Mason saw a convergence of advocacy groups across the state that converged and backed Mason. Black groups, NACP, labor organizations, and other factors. But I can't explain, I don't know if specifically black lawmakers played a role in that, but I do know that historically when things like that happen, black lawmakers do play a role in a kind of behind the scenes work, which is indicative of what often black lawmakers do. And quite frankly, in some respects, they're more effective in terms of substantive and meaningful impact on on policy doing that kind of work than often in the legislature where their bills could be defeated at any at any given moment. Uh-huh. Well, so I think that's important. I want to stick there for a minute because especially with young people, they will say, well, they're not, and this could be any state, so I'm not talking about Tennessee. It could be, they aren't doing anything for us. They aren't representing us. I don't see them doing these things. Talk to me about what is, what, what's effective for black lawmakers. You, you mentioned sort of that behind the scenes work. What is effective for a black lawmaker in a state where you have sort of these overwhelming super majorities of conservatives and the numbers just aren't there for black lawmakers or even liberal, white liberal Democrats to be chairs of committees or sponsor bills or what have you. What types of things are effective? Well, yeah, well, thanks for that question, because it also gets to this what I call an origin story, which mm-hmm. is that the national media saw this resistance from three lawmakers and suddenly said that 
black lawmakers are resisting. And it doesn't say that, doesn't talk about what happened before that. And right. so, you know, in a, we're in a state where there's a supermajority controlled by Republicans and the Republican Party, quite frankly, is anchored by a, a, a deeply layered form of political extremism mm-hmm. to the point to which that some of the more recent studies on democracy have ranked Tennessee last in that. Oh, wow. Is, yeah. Yeah. So there's I just want to make sure that's the context. So black lawmakers are operating in a very hostile environment. No, no Democrat has to be in the room to take a vote on a bill. Mm-hmm. The, the, the the Speaker of the House on the floor and also the committee chairs can shut off the mics of black lawmakers at any moment in time. They can add amendments to bills. They could take your bill. Mm. They could take your bill that you're pushing forward. So it's it's a very hostile environment. It's like you're in a in a in a in a, in a to use a meta metaphor. Imagine being in a war and you're surrounded on all sides. Mm-hmm. And that's where they're doing. Having said all that, we do find instances, and I'm going to give you several examples of what black lawmakers have done. But on the legislative side, we do have instances of black lawmakers passing legislation. Okay. We've gotten the criminal justice legislation passed for formerly incarcerated persons, make sure their children won't get taken away if they're jailed for three or four months or three to six months. We have, you know, ban the box that got adopted. We have stuff that's been done at a smaller scale for Mary Medical College. We have quite a few victories that are being racked up by lawmakers. But when those victories happen, there are several variables that are several factors that really converge. Number one is that they're often working in concert with advocacy groups. Number two is that they often will choose legislation that's low-hanging fruit. That is that that where it can build a consensus across partisan lines. Number three, they they'll work on it for three or four years. And then at times, black lawmakers will advance legislation that may not have their name on it, but they're the architects or originators of it. The sales tax freeze, the expansion of that was primarily anchored by black lawmakers, although they didn't get the credit. So there's, they're still they're still doing that, but it's an ex- excessively hostile environment. And I want to just to give add more to this to, to this context that. Like like many southern states, we're, we're, our legislative calendar only lasts four months, right? Four to five months, and 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 in four to five months, they're crowdsourcing anti civil rights, anti black, anti everything bills all at once. Yeah, so yeah. you have to pick and, and then you have to carry your own bill, so you're picking and choosing. But in addition to that, I want to say where black lawmakers can be effective is amendments to bills. Okay, and that's harder to track in the research because amendments to bills um, are often they often don't track. Who voted for the bills? Who voted for those amendments? Sometimes amendments to bills happen in committee hearings where there are voice votes. And what some of the research has found is that African-American lawmakers are effective at making, frankly, making bad bills less bad. Okay. And make, which is which is which is a big deal. So you have a bill that is that is horrific. I mean, like horrific. Yeah. But it would be even more horrific if not for African-Americans finding ways to make it less horrific. And you find them making taking bills that might be decent and, and improving them all in the amendment process that's hard of the hard of the track you know, you know in terms of the research but and then you find lawmakers black lawmakers that are effective at at leveraging their influence and reputations to navigate complicated bureaucracies and I'll just give you one example in Nashville a group of activists pushed for a community oversight board a civilian review board after the killing of African-American by police officers and the board wanted to have subpoena power. And so our local government said we couldn't have it for that board. But it was effectively what we found out was it was had been approved by the state Supreme Courts and everything. But we needed confirmation. So so activists asked state one of the prominent state lawmakers to get an opinion from the attorney generals. And 
the state lawmakers are the only ones who can request an opinion. Mm-hmm. So there's ways in which they can leverage their reputational resources, their influence to navigate various bureaucracies, not just at the state level, but also at the at the local level. Yeah. At the local level. And that can have a significant monumental impact. There's ways in which lawmakers, particularly black lawmakers, they do a lot of what's called casework. Mm-hmm. That means that they help people who may need property tax freezes. They yeah. help people who may need uh, who are locked up in prison un- through unfair means. They can get letters to parole boards. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> they can do a lot of these things that we call casework mm-hmm. uh, that are very important. And that's where a lot of lawmakers are still influenced. It's just that in a very restricted, hostile legislative environment, that's where they're most they're most restricted. And that's where I think what, you, what I want to, to the audience that although we had this resistance from the Tennessee Three, it's it's not the only form of resistance. Sure. Other actions of resistance, primarily anchored by black women. Mm-hmm. And so that, and so the story of the Tennessee Three, what's missing from that narrative is the work of, of black women lawmakers who have who have who have who have done these kinds of things yep. in Tennessee, even even despite the fact that it's a hostile environment. Yeah, no, I I think it's really important that, and I'm glad you said that because it is it is so Im, Im, important for people to stay engaged in the political process while we're in this really sort of hostile period across southern states of where there's. Can I, can I add to that? I want to add something that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the important role of state and local officials, and I and I'm almost pleading and begging. Look, in a state like Tennessee, I assume Georgia. Lawmakers are paid $25,000 a year for a four-month session and with very little staff and, and you know, and it, may, and it may appear that these are so-called the minor leagues and Congress is the major league. Mm-hmm. And so, but state lawmakers exercise an enormous amount of power. Yes. And I, and I know it's, I know maybe I might get some rejection from other political scientists and some of the, some national commentators Maybe more important than congressional Congress members, because a state lawmaker right now, if you go to a committee hearing, just sit through a committee hearing, look at all the bills they're voting on, utility rates, utilities, land use issues for farmers, you know, the whole deal, the whole deal, supplies, you know, school supplies. If you look instructional, and it's not just that they're voting on it, but most of the stuff they're voting on immediately goes into effect. Like July, like July 1st. Right. Or August 1st. And so these state lawmakers have an enormous amount of power to have the more immediate impact on the day to day lives of of folks, working people in ways that members of Congress don't have, because, you know, most most legislation, most bills don't get don't get adopted in, in, in Congress. And by the time it goes down to the states, it's it's here or there and maneuvered and so forth like that. But for the state lawmakers, they have an enormous amount of influence and power to have an, an immediate effect like today, like today. Oh, yeah. Listen, I could add even in the past Georgia session, a bill did not get passed. And this is where state lawmakers play a big is that landlords maintaining a minimum sort of livability of their properties. I mean, there's so much that happens in your state legislature that just... And most of us, most times you go to committee hearings, very few people in the room and they're making decisions on that impact everyday people. Yeah. You mentioned Pearson having been involved in environmentalism. Now, I will say for me, Mark, personally, up until yesterday, 
I didn't really get environmental issues as essential to black issues, right? The same, I think, is I think people, black people get immigration and they see it as a moral wrong. But I wonder, are we, whether it's black voters or black politicians, active enough in these issues where we can build coalitions, sort of black and Latino, black and sort of immigration issues or environmentalism, where you have environmental activists and sort of black lawmakers or black voters can partner together. Are we doing enough in those areas? Well, I think we made a lot of inroads in the more recent years on immigration issues. And, and I think you mentioned two issues that are kind of separate. And, you know, we have a chapter on immigration. And, and yeah. mm-hmm. so I know a lot about environmental stuff because of some of my previous work. But on immigration across the across the I'd say the South or the, the, the country. We've done a lot better, partly by re-narrating the immigration story as not just a story about the southern border, but yeah. for African Americans, it's a story about the southern border and it's a story about Somali immigrants and, and, and Sudanese immigrants. And it's a and so you have actually black led immigration rights, immigration justice based groups that are re-narrating the story of what immig- the immigration story means. And also you find even instances of, of African-Americans that are really willing and wanting to build alliances that are also integrating into this, this story, you know, debates about, you know, African-American history migrating from, you know, Mississippi Delta to Chicago, yeah. Alabama to Detroit, that that is an a, a immigration story of a different kind. So, you're fighting inroads, and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. But you're fighting inroads, and it matters for operating in these red states because these red states, like Tennessee, they're no longer solely defined by a, a black-white dichotomy, so sure. to speak, or a black-white encounter. In parts of Tennessee, and parts of Georgia, and parts of Alabama, you find it's not just African Americans or, or, or whites, but you find Latinos, you find Somali work, Somali residents, and other residents. Curtis residents in Tennessee that are migrating, not just into those hub areas or central city hub areas, but are migrating into smaller towns and so forth. And so there's a possibility over the next decade of building out kind of a multiracial alliances, coalitions, although they may be fragile, but coalitions nonetheless. On on environmental story, we made monumental, significant inroads in that, particularly led by by activists in the South. Mm-hmm. Places like Texas with Dr. Robert Bullard, they yeah. had a, a fight around landfills, monumental fight, North Carolina yeah. uh, that had in Warren County in 1982. And all of that really led to, in 1991, a summit called an Environmental Justice Summit, People of Color Environmental Justice Summit, and the first executive order that was adopted, 12898, around environmental justice. And the idea behind environmental justice is that the environmental decisions that affect the environment that are adverse, like where landfills are located, mm-hmm. toxic waste are located, those disproportionately impact Black, Latino, Native American communities and poor communities. And that effort has been led by African Americans. So there's a three or four decade movement around that. And so if you look at environmental justice, one of the things that you saw the anti-Obama backlash, the backlash against Obama was partly directed, if you really kind of unpack it, towards his EPA, his environmental and and the EPA had African-Americans in that EPA. So it was kind of a, what I would argue, 
I don't know if there's been any research on it, was kind of an anti-black backlash. And now Joe Biden's EPA has has advanced the most progressive environmental justice program in this country's history. Yeah, for sure. $100 million in environmental justice grants, a new office that deals with environmental justice. And that's not because of the empathy of, of, of white political leaders. Those efforts are anchored by black activists and organizers. Like that's that's a long push by them. That's a victory for them. So to go back to Justin Pearson, he's stepping into a city that is also ground zero for environmental justice. We have the Memphis Depot, which was a military depot that collected hazardous waste that 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 bled into the groundwater and drinking water of black residents that, that in which there are a lot of cancer, you know, cancer rates in that particular community. There's some research in this about environmental justice in Memphis that's done by you know quite a few all scholars in which the environmental justice movement has been essentially important in a city like Memphis. And so for Justin Pearson, he stepped into an environment that has a deep roots in environmental justice movement going back decades. Yeah. And so that's kind of the story behind that. No, thank you for that. Because I, I think one of the things that we are missing as an organization and a partnership opportunity here in Georgia and Atlanta there's a, a huge law enforcement training facility. It's called the Public Safety Something or Facility, affectionately known in all barbershops as Cop City. A lot of the activity and pushback over there is it's it started with environmentalists. And I think now, you know, there's beginning to be some groundswell of the environmentalists and people who are criminal justice reform beginning to come together to sort of ask questions and push back. So I think there's an opportunity there for us. I want to switch gears a, a little bit. And I know Tennessee is a place where, where you work, live, and spend a lot of time studying. But just a few months ago in the midterm elections, there were several state elections as well. And here in Georgia, we had Stacey Abrams against Brian Kemp. Stacey Abrams lost. But in Maryland, Wes Moore became the first black governor of Maryland. Now, when I look at the demographics of Maryland and Georgia from a racial standpoint, they seem similar. I want to say Georgia's like 33 or 33 and a half percent black and Maryland's about 31-ish or so. They seem similar. But I was perplexed as to why Moore won and Abrams lost and actually lost pretty, got a pretty handed, pretty handily, handily defeated there. Any thoughts on that? Well, I will say that although both have similar amounts of black people living in them, at least in terms of voting age population, and they're both are Southern cities, Southern states rather, Maryland is probably more up south, so to speak. Yeah. Or what they what some people call across has crossways to to the north or at least parts of the north. And then with Maryland, I think it's easier to win in Maryland. Maryland there's a history of blacks black lawmakers having some success, at least on at least on the Republican side, in statewide elections of Michael Steele, who's former lieutenant right. governor. Yeah. But there's also in, in Maryland the the black caucus has been particularly strong, and the Democratic Party has had much more power in the state of Maryland than it has in more recent years than it has had in Georgia. From the voters, the, vo the voter pr perspective, I think it's easier to 
build out a, 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 it's easier to consolidate the black vote into, in Maryland than, 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 than Georgia because you can concentrate a tremendous amount of resources in three hub areas, Baltimore, Prince George County, and, and, and if you want to even go to the rural communities of Eastern Shore to turn out large numbers of African Americans in that particular, in that particular state. And then you probably have a, a collection of educated white voters who are moderate or, or liberal who primarily migrated to DC for the politics and government and other factors. And then, and then in Georgia, it's just a, a harder state to win. You have to have a lot of resources, a lot of money, because even if you turn out in Atlanta metro area, you still have to reach different parts of the state, yeah. both rural and urban, throughout the entire state, from Savannah to Albany and all the above. Georgia also has a more recent history of voter suppression, particularly the voter purge, in which you know yeah. hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people have been purged from the voter roll, something that Stacey Abrams articulated. I think that uh, with Abrams, I think that I'm trying to see if I can say this with a, with, in a diplomatic way. I think that what I'm hearing from different people, I don't know this for the research, but I heard this from other political scientists that she needed to do. I heard she needed to do a better job making deeper connections to to base black voters, black voters that could really turn out. Yeah. And and I, and that's what I've heard, but I haven't studied studied it, it, it as well. And I think with Abrams, she. I mean, she was a state senator, and she's a national political star, but that doesn't always translate to winning in a state that has a deep tradition of Jim Crowism, yeah. racial polarization, the whole range of things. And I think that some of the national started, st- stardom doesn't translate to winning in a state like Georgia. And I think that's a conversation that I think an activist probably should have at a deeper level in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, listen, and, and you know, I've been involved in some of different conversations or heard or what have you. I, I think for me, what was most disappointing, and I don't know what the answer is, that she received fewer votes. I'm not fewer votes from Black people, fewer votes. She received fewer votes overall from her run in 2018 to 2022, almost like 100,000 votes. She got fewer, just total Mm -hmm. votes as the state became blacker. I mean, you know, listen, it's Atlanta. I mean, you know, (laughs) hey, hey, everybody got people in Atlanta. So it was really something that I think that black people, Democrats would really do well to spend some time in figuring out what happened. In Tennessee, you're a Senate race between Phil Bresden, who was a former governor and was involved in something that a lot of conservatives would say, yeah, you should be and really, I'd say, defunding your Medicaid program. So he's not a a liberal by any stretch of the imagination and had something that he could point to as a, that would support his sort of moderate or conservative sort of bona fides, ran against Marsha Blackburn and was defeated handily. I want to say by almost 10 points, it looked like. What does that race in Tennessee tell us about what's ahead in this sort of Biden-Harris versus whoever it will be on the Republican side? What is what is Tennessee informing us there? 
I mean, that really says everything. I mean, that was Bredesen was your ideal candidate. He was a conservative or moderate conservative Democrat, former mayor of Nashville, had a record of basically disenrolling folks from Medicaid. And he also downsized our workers' compensation. Both of them were both of those issues offended liberals and, and, and civil rights groups. He also had a good record of around expanding pre-K education. And also as governor, he was, this is when he was governor. Mm-hmm. And he also really intervened and, and offered intervention in, in stemming the infant mortality rate in Memphis. So he had both the good and the bad in terms of the standpoint of African-Americans and civil rights groups and was a former governor. And as governor, he put together a strategy that, Others have tried to replicate, including Harold Ford Jr., who was uh, African-American and ran for the U.S. Senate, which was basically you'd have a high turnout in those central cities like Memphis and Nashville, and you cut into the Republican Party base in rural communities in those rural east, and then you find a way to at least cut into the Republican Party base in places like Knox or Knox County. So he had a strategy or framework that he put together in the 2002 election, and people thought that it could be replicated. But the electorate... Is, has changed. It's become much more fragmented. And I think people thought that he, that, that Marshall Blackburn had the advantage in the race and that Bredesen would lose. But the idea that he lost so dramatically to me was, was an indicator of where Tennessee has gone. And I, and I think part of it again is some of its infrastructure that again, there have to be some conversations among Democrats, among you know, grassroots organizations about infrastructure. I don't think its infrastructure was good, frankly, mm-hmm. in terms of voter turnout infrastructure. I don't think he had a particularly good infrastructure in rural communities. And that infrastructure has to be rebuilt from the ground up entirely. And we found this out, my students, probably about 2004, we interviewed both Democratic Party and Republican Party county chairs. And the, back then in 2004, the the level of disillusionment among Democratic Party county chairs was very high. They were very disillusioned and very almost almost traumatized by the grounds that they were losing to Republicans in, in these rural communities. So Bredesen, as governor, he didn't really do a good he was he didn't really do a good job at build, at party building activities, like building the party. And so if you fast forward when he ran for the U.S. Senate, he just pretty much got got soundly defeated. And it tells a lot about where we are in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you mentioned that. And so I always remind people that nationally, Obama never received a plurality of white voters. That, that just didn't happen in either election. And also with 2020, where Biden was elected and we in Georgia got Ossoff and Raphael Warnock as the senators, what I saw happening between when Obama ran and then the 2020 election is that Democrats and black voting groups did not give up on rural counties or small counties where there's small pockets of black people. So let's say if there's a county and it's and it's a population of 5,000 total, I don't know if there's a county that's small, but yeah. that's the math that I can do. And there are only 500 black voters there. They did everything that they could to get those 500 out. Yeah. Like, we know we're not going to win this county, but we're going to get every single vote that we can out. And I, I, listen, I hope that we replicate some of those strategies. What, yeah, I mean, it, go, 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 no, go, go ahead. You got I mean, it. like, it goes back to Abrams. What if Abrams' election was in 2020? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What about high intensity elections? 
where there's a higher voter turnout threshold. But you're getting at a very important point, which is the the it's it's, it's such an important point that should be the story coming out of the exposure crisis because I think the exposure crisis. The, the, I, I didn't like the national narrative around it, quite frankly, because the national narrative around it, particularly by cable news shows and producers, is like you have these. It's like a western showdown where on one side you got the villain in the middle of the town, you got the hero. They pull out their guns and boom, the, the, the hero wins and everybody marches on. And look, I promise you, the week of the reinstatement mm-hmm. and when the national media was on. In on in Tennessee, the legislature went and passed a, a dozen or so bad bills attacking civil rights, yeah. attacking black folks, attacking yeah. a, a, a range of folks. If you want to make inroads in a state like Tennessee, it has to be a long haul fight, yes, a county by county fight. But yes, you're absolutely correct. There are counties that are 15% African American, 20% African American cities like that outside of the major hub areas. No, no. No attention, no infrastructure, no voter mobilization there, right? They're not sent. There's, there's, no one's, no one's recruiting Democratic committee persons there. There's almost zero, zero attention, not just by the Democratic Party, but by even the grassroots organizing community. Yeah. And to make inroads in these areas, you have to go in these communities where there are there are active people. And, and, and there's a chance that we can do this because look, in Tennessee. We have a Tennessee State NACP. We're in 25 to 30 counties. We have the Divine Nine organizations. Yeah. They have, they're, they're in a dozen counties. We have something there, for, at least for African Americans, but also for other groups there in which we can build upon. But we have to make the effort to do that. And that's going to take a different kind of conversation. Yeah, we had we were fortunate to have Charlie Cobb of SNCC, who was on our show. And he he said, you know, we are strong right now in terms of protest, which is a good thing, but lacking sort of the organizing, which he said is a is a weakness that we're not organizing in the way that we should. Uh, you mentioned Harold Ford Jr., who I thought was a rising star, somebody, somebody that I could have seen, you know, running for president or certainly running for governor again, uh, running for governor in Tennessee or Senate again or what have you. Where is Harold Ford Jr. now? Harold Ford Jr. left. Okay. He ran for office in 2006, came close, Yeah, wanted to rely upon the Bredesen strategy that I mentioned earlier. There was some tension there in Memphis because he wanted a higher turnout of, of folks in Memphis, so that caused some internal tension in this campaign. And then had a very competitive campaign and and stayed around for two years and then, and then two or three years, I think, maybe less than that, and then packed up and moved to New York. Mm-hmm. And and it's no longer you know relevant in the discussion of Tennessee. And actually, after he moved to New York, he considered running for the U.S. Senate up there yeah. and decided not to. But it was kind of I wish he would have stayed around and seen what it would look like for another Senate run or gubernatorial run and to really build up, build up the Democratic Party. Yeah. That was that was really decaying. It was really kind of. De- declining significantly, but you know, maybe you saw the handwriting on the wall or something like that. Yeah, but. yeah. Okay. Well, so as we're beginning to come to a close, and we really appreciate your time. There's a couple of things I want to want to get to really quickly. I want to say that Representative Justin Jones was 
certainly involved in, I think, the Nashville student organization. Was he also, you mentioned Diane Nash. So listen, anytime you are, a, you have Diane Nash as a, as a mentor, you, you automatically are moving towards the top of the line. What, what is the Highlander Folk School and, and is it, you know, is it involved in organizing and, and developing leaders now? Yeah, the Highlander Folk School is now called the Highlander Research Center because okay. what you may know is that in the late fifties and early sixties, the state 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 of Tennessee and and I think even Arkansas really engaged in a massive repression campaign of, of the Highlanders Center, Highlander Folk School. So they reorganized. They moved from an area closer to Middle Tennessee the rural part of Appalachia, Middle Tennessee, and they moved far east Tennessee past Knoxville. And they've had, they've been led by multiple executive directors. And now, at least for the last, I would say, number of years, they've been led by two very prominent activists. One is Ashley Woodard Henderson, who's well known in the South. And the other one is, is, is Alan Steele. And, and they're very well known and they do a lot of trainings of activists and organizers. It's one of the kind of movement training grounds for, for a lot of folks in here in Tennessee and also across the South. And the Highlander works with other grassroots groups across, across the, the region. I, I actually would understand has strong ties to Project South, which, which comes out of, I think out of the Atlanta area too as well. So Highlander is, 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 is very, is very much a, a well known entity here in, here in Tennessee. Okay. And in your book, you threw out a term. It, I, I have it on my notes here is black people are politically captive or captured by the Democratic Party. I want to say, I, I don't, what does it mean to be captive? Well, I think, I think what I was, what we were suggesting back then, and I would probably don't know if I would, hmm. would make that argument now in Tennessee, at least, was that African American, advocacy groups and lawmakers should have pushed then Governor Phil Bredesen much harder on not to disenroll Medicaid recipients. 300,000 or so were targeted initially. And, and the argument was, and I understand why they some were reluctant because many African-American lawmakers and, and also, you know, liberal advocacy groups were very fearful that if Bredesen was seen as too so-called progressive, it would give Republicans an advantage and they would take control of the legislature, which they ultimately did. And, and our, yeah, our argument was that a significant number of African-Americans were going to be harmed by the disenrollment plan, hospital closures as well. But also, you know, the argument was that you don't want to give, you know, so, you know, you don't want to give rural voters, rural white voters, not just rural black, but also rural white voters who are susceptible to being mobilized by, by right wing forces. You don't want to give them over to the Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so if you have these kind of rural voters who are, who are now disenrolled from Medicaid, you know, then, then they may look to the democratic party, not as a lifeline for healthcare, but as an opponent to healthcare. Mm -hmm. So, but we, it was very difficult to make that argument with African American politicos who were, who were for the most part, captive or captured by 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 the Democratic Party. But I, we understand why they had some hesitancy along those lines. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you for that. And I, listen, this is Mark's opinion. 
I think sometimes that we are, well, not we, but when I hear national politicians and even state politicians saying that they're going to isolate this white working class voter, I don't know if that person exists anymore in the way that it did in 1975 Detroit or Chicago or what have you. I, I, I just, I, I wonder sometimes is there a, a reach for something that doesn't exist anymore. And instead of pushing hard for, you know, fully funded public schools for expanded Medicaid, pushing back hard against, you know, anti-CRT and all of those things that we run the risk of not giving young Black people something to latch on to politically and feel enthusiastic about by just playing it middle of the road. That's and, that, and, and now we're in Tennessee because our state also, because of the significantly rightward shift, our state has not expanded Medicaid under Obamacare or created the parallel program. We were at a a recent report came out that says that I think 45% of rural hospitals, where many of these voters are, yeah. are at risk of closure. Mm-hmm. Their state lawmakers are saying nothing about that. Mm-hmm. And we now have an affordable housing crisis that's, of course, has always existed in the central cities and the metro areas. Now it's leaking into these rural communities because that's where more gainfully employed people are moving to who can't afford the central cities. So now these state lawmakers who state lawmakers, they passed a law stopping or preventing local governments from adopting an inclusionary zoning bill, basically as an attack on Nashville. Now these local, now these state lawmakers are dealing with constituents in their rural communities who want what affordable housing. So, <laughs> yeah, hey, listen, I, w- I, tell people, I have been coming, so I'm, I'm, I, I know I look like super young, but I've been coming here to Atlanta since the late 80s. And I can take you places right now where you can buy a $19 vegan taco and look up at a loft that's selling for $750,000. And I can tell you right there, there was a barbershop and that was public housing. And now the city is is changing very, it's changing a whole lot. Atlanta is, is very different than it used to be. Dr. Franklin, as we come to a close, one of the things that we we in the part on the parlay in all blue, we are intentional about talking about issues like what happened with the expulsion in depth and to give people something more than just the, the sizzle of it, because underneath there is the real story. We also do deep dives into reconstruction or we spent time with Charlie Cobb and Snick beyond sort of. Stokely Carmichael's Black Power Call, what have you. Because one of the things that we notice is that throughout history from the time in bondage, Reconstruction, Jim Crow is that Black people, you know, have created dance, created songs, got married and built families or what have you. And so that's kind of what's behind our, one of our closing questions. What does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live well to you? Well, I think like for us in Tennessee and throughout the you know country, it's it's you know operating in a very hostile political environment, trying to get legislation passed is part of it. Mm-hmm. But part of it is trying to make sure that we af- affirm ourselves. Yes. And and 
build a what, what's what some call a beloved community, but part of that is affirming our dignity. Mm-hmm. That regardless of the insults, regardless of the legislation that's designed to attack and undermine us, we have to constantly affirm our humanity. And to me, that means having strong spiritual foundations, mm-hmm. not just say churches, but yep. celebrations, so to speak, ceremonies. We have a, a tradition that in, makes sure that there's a tradition, emerging tradition in Tennessee of, and it may sound maybe middle class, but giving out awards, so to speak. Oh, no. Folks, because we want to make sure we give people their flowers there and celebrate them. Making sure that, for me, it's making sure that those persons most harmed, like, for example, by police killings and so forth, mm-hmm. that we do constant check-ins with them, mm-hmm. seeing how they're doing, and allowing for them to, to, to cry as a form of healing, to feel the pain, while at the same time finding ways to to lift those persons up. I think for me, it's also finding ways to build out intergenerational relationships and conversations and, and, and reproducing kind of that kind of love ethic through various kind of ways. And, you know, because again, we're dealing with white supremacy. We're dealing with hostile environments. We're dealing with, I mean, it's vicious. I'm not going to say a lot of you. What we're dealing with Tennessee is, what we're dealing with Tennessee is it's traumatizing. I mean, I was in the state legislative committee. I'm not going to lie to you. I, 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 I was embarrassed about saying this, but I've been talking about it more. I was in a state committee a hearing and I almost walked out and cried. I mean, I almost mm-hmm. went home and cried. That's how bad, that's how traumatizing it was. And mm-hmm. so for just for me to even have a space to talk about it was healing for me. Yeah. Cause I know that what they're doing is going to harm. It's going to kill people. I mean, it's, it, there's real bodies on the ground. It's going to, so finding a way to, to rejuvenate uh, internally joy and the beloved community and spiritual health and affirmation. I think those are the ways that I think a lot of activists are constantly trying to find a way to do, trying to find things to do to, 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 to answer your question. No, thank you for that. That's an excellent perspective and overview on that. And then the last part of it, the in all blue in the title is, is that it is a nod that, you know, certainly modern music as a whole, but American music specifically all flows from the blues, whether it's jazz, R&B, hip hop, country and Western, all American music forms from the blues. What's your musical go-tos, Dr. Franklin, as we close? Well, I do a lot of jazz music and, and, a, and a kind of older jazz j- jazz music. Like? Um, like like Coltrane, oh. Dexter, Gord- Dexter Gordon. Yeah. Farrell Sanders, yeah, uh, Sonny Rollins, you know, yeah, no, <laughs> and, and I and I do a lot of the uh, you know vocal artists like Diane Reeves and and, okay. and, and, and Liz Wright, more contemporary contemporary Berker. and then I've been I've, I've been inspired to your to your to your blues where I where this which links your question right now to the last question, mm. which is this this I've been over and over watching this rendition of BB King at at the prison in New York. Oh yeah, the concert that he did with John Baez yeah. and, and these 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 dancers and singers of Harlem, and I and I watched that video over and over again because I don't know if you've seen it, but when you watch that video of BB King and he gives three or four songs, and he does, it's a mini documentary that just came out hmm. that shows of him going to to one of the prisons back in the seventies, and if you see if you see the look on the on the faces of those of the men in the prison, yeah. if you see the faces, the tears in their eyes. 
yeah. the dancing that they're doing, all this trauma. And they call it B.B. King's maybe greatest performance. Mm-hmm. And what that did in terms of what the blues and this song did to answer that second, that last, that other question you answered about how do you oh, find yeah. joy? And and I so often will go back to that video whenever I need hope and whenever I need rejuvenation. No, that's that's awesome. And listen, I am a huge jazz fan. You mentioned Sonny Rollins and Coltrane. I'm a big fan of of, of Duke Ellington and Monk. And so jazz is kind of my go-to. Now, I will also say that my speaking of public and state, my wife and I saw a concert between the Nashville Symphony and Nas there. I want to say maybe it's was that it's been it was maybe about a year ago. So you all have some really nice yeah. public facilities yeah, there in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. So listen, we really appreciate you and your time. I want to encourage everyone to Follow Dr. Franklin on Twitter. He is always posting some interesting things and and his articles. Also, pay attention to what is happening with your state elections school board. We didn't talk about that. That that is hyper local. But the person on your school board is determining what books will be read. And the people who are on school boards become state legislatures and they become congressional legislatures and all along. So it, it all matters. We really appreciate you for, for listening to the parlay in all blue. And thank you, Dr. Seiko Franklin for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. The parlay in all blue is produced by Raina Booth podcast productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash parlaying all blue. Remember to like the show, leave a review, and share it. It helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us. If you have questions, comments, or show ideas, please email us at mark at the Finally, remember to follow us on social media. And thanks, be well, and we out.